Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. Uh, I'm joined today by Peter Suderman and Chris Orr, who is filling in for Alyssa on her maternity leave. Chris, Peter, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm happy to be talking about movies with friends. First up in controversies and controversies, we're moving away from talking about movies with friends to talk about uh, the culture more broadly. Jack Dorsey is out as Twitter CEO. He's going to be replaced by current CTO Parag Agarwal. I'm, that's, I'm, I've probably butchered that. I apologize to my new uh, Twitter overlord. Um, I think it's important to briefly contextualize Twitter's place in the information ecosystem to understand why we're, we're talking about this. According to Pew, roughly one quarter of U.S. adults are Twitter users. That's a pretty big population, but it's really not that big because only one quarter of that population is responsible for, get this, 97% of tweets on the service. One quarter of one quarter of the population uh, means that about one sixteenth or so of the population, if I'm doing my math right here, it's either one sixteenth or one eighth. I'm pretty sure it's one sixteenth, uh, is responsible for, again, 97% of the tweets that you see. Uh, and given the fact that Twitter skews younger, it skews further to the left politically, uh, and it skews uh, a little bit richer, that means that the site is, generally speaking, to the left uh, and to a, just in a different place from the country writ, writ large. Um, that wouldn't really be an issue. Different social media uh, companies do different things for different people. Uh, but it is a key issue in one way, and that is that Twitter remains the preferred social media site for folks in the media. Um, and much of the media's response to the news of the day is at least informed by what they see on Twitter. We discussed this a little bit last week uh, in how this impacts things like Oscar races. When we talked about the controversy that's rolled around Sean Baker and his film Red Rocket after he liked a handful of pro-Kyle uh, Rittenhouse tweets. Um, that simple act threatened to derail the whole movie's release strategy. And I heard from a, a few people after the show who were like, why are you bothering with this? I think it's important to understand where stories come from and how they they impact what you guys uh, see in the, in the real world and how that impacts, again, broader things, larger things, like very important things like the Oscars. Uh, this is, again, this 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 skew, uh, I think, is probably not healthy. And the, the amount of attention that Twitter receives from folks in the media like myself is probably not healthy either. Um, I think the ways in which uh, Twitter uh, has come to dominate the discourse more broadly is what I'm saying. Not that healthy. I, I remain convinced that Donald Trump didn't win the GOP primary in 2016 because he had, you know, 50 million Twitter followers or whatever, right? I think he won because the G he won the GOP primary at least because every time he tweeted something, every journalist felt that they had to cover it and that drowned out the ability of any of the other candidates to get any attention at all. But it also kept all of the focus on Donald Trump and, and that, you know, just kind of uh, stopped anybody else from being able to blossom. Um, new leadership at Twitter means that there are likely changes to come. Uh, long gone are the days when Twitter represented the free speech wing of the free speech party, as Jack Dorsey once uh, said. Uh, but what should the company be going forward? How is it best to grow uh, what Twitter does and aid in the national conversation? Peter, you occasionally manage to get off Twitter for, for a few months at a time every once in a while. Uh, what would your big change be? What do, you, what do you find yourself both missing when you leave and excited to engage with when you come back? Uh, so if I were, if I were Twitter's um, god emperor, I think uh, the first thing I would be tempted to do would just be to nuke it from orbit. <laughs> And and delete the entire thing, and and maybe like you know, then put some videos of me smashing the servers on TikTok. Um, no, I I'm I'm sort of joking. I'm sort of not. It would be kind of funny. Um, so maybe a second <laughs> thing, um, 
would be uh, what uh, what Jack Dorsey has actually talked about doing, which is, and this is gonna, Chris is gonna be like, what? I know Chris is gonna say this, is, but put it on the blockchain. No, and I don't, what yes, does that even no, mean? no, no. And so here's what I actually mean: it's don't let's let's take this away from like uh, crypto terminology that people that like irritates people. Instead, just let's just decentralize it. Let's make it a fully distributed product that is run by no one and just supported by whoever is part of the system. And that's like how Bitcoin works. That's how all crypto works, right? Is there's no well, you're person, talking about a BBS. No, right. Mm, sort of something like that. But what this but what that would do is sort of eliminate the pressure on Twitter's, you know, overlords, right? On Jack Dorsey and on everyone who works there to oh, you have to decide what's gonna be okay to say and what's not and what the rules are and all this. No, there there would just be there would just be a system and it would be answerable to no one. And so I think that sort of world, uh, like a, a decentralized system that is not one where we have speech arbiters is gonna be one that's um that is just sort of going to generate a little less controversy, but the actually, like in the very short term, like in in the like tomorrow next week, I actually wouldn't want to do anything to Twitter. What I would want is for people who are Twitter users and Twitter consumers and who are influenced by Twitter, and I specifically mean managers, editors, CEOs, uh, heads of movie studios, people who make casting decisions, uh, right? HR professionals. Pay less attention to it. Not don't even worry about whether you're tweeting or not tweeting yourself. Don't worry about whether you're like just don't worry so much about what is happening on Twitter. Not just because it's unhealthy. Not just because it's like a, a, a weird sort of addiction that all of the folks in the media business have, but because I think there is actually a huge market for for like non Twitter determined stuff, and so. I am not a big fan of Joe Biden. I have many, many criticisms of Joe Biden as a politician. But I think the best thing that he did as a politician at running his uh, running his presidential campaign was that he and his staffers basically stayed off of Twitter, basically said, we are not going to let today's Twitter outrage determine the course of how we're going to campaign. And it turned out that there was a huge market for that because, as you said, Sonny, most people aren't on Twitter and Twitter isn't the whole world. Uh, Chris, I, there's a lot to, to talk about here, but the f- one thing I want you to drill down on is Peter's suggestion that a decentralized Twitter uh, where people could just, uh, you know, make up their own rules about what they want to talk about would be better for us. Well, it will probably not come as a great surprise to you, given that I'm not a libertarian and generally consider libertarians an idle amusement. Sorry, Peter. I, I aim to be an <laughs> idle amusement for you, Chris. I take it back. I, I would not call you an idle amusement. I would call you a very important amusement. <laughs> an active in my amusement. Exactly. An animated amusement? Yeah, all right. So, I, I mean, honestly, I have the exact opposite view. I think, I think content should be moderated more aggressively. I think there should be more rules in place. I think, you know, part of the problem that they've had, obviously, is they didn't really have particularly clear rules about what was allowed and what was not allowed. You know, everything was very vague. And obviously, Twitter is not nearly as as bad as Facebook. Um, but, you know, Twitter is a huge vector for lots of really dangerous, false ideas out there. And there are a lot of people who have died, and I would certainly think it's in the thousands, probably in the tens of thousands, of people who have died because they've gotten vaccine denialist stuff through Twitter, um, so yeah, so I completely disagree on that. I also want to say probably Peter, the reason I was so 
mean about libertarians a moment ago is that you stole my joke about how the best thing you could do with Twitter would be, you know, turn off the switch. You know, as for but other then, ideas. But, my, but, I, but what I also said was I'd post the videos of me like destroying the servers on TikTok. And the point is, it's not going away. It's just going to shift no, venues, of course. right? I mean, we, you you eliminate Twitter, right? right? And so that's, yeah. I mean, I was, and, and you know, like I said, I, I obviously right. have like a love, love, hate relationship with Twitter, like so many journalists do. Uh, but I just don't think that eliminating it is going to destroy the, uh, is, is actually going to destroy the thing. It's just going to then shift yeah, into, then, then into new, venues that we would, that, that probably have less visibility. This is so this is the problem, right, is that we have social media. Social media will be with us forever, whether it's uh, Twitter, TikTok or Facebook or, you know, whatever horrible form it will take in the future that we cannot envision in the metaverse with our children, with their VR goggles, just uh, spending all time trading, you know. Uh, 180 character emojis at each it other. is cyber monday <laughs> uh but the but like the 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 but the point is we we have we have social media we uh you know want to make it the most useful version of itself to help people live their lives and as you say chris not die how do we do that i mean what is what is the actual what would a what would a thing that we could do and I don't mean something little and dumb like, oh, we need an edit button. But I mean, I like I am I ask because I am I am afraid that the problem here is that the, the problem with social media is not the media part. It's the social. It's just it's the people. Social media. It is like Soylent Green. It is people. It is us. We are we are what we eat and what we consume and what we eat and what we consume is ourselves. And it's awful. It's bad for us. So I have I have two additional thoughts. The first is I think if Twitter you know, were to decide to gift me with, say, 100,000 extra followers, it would really fix the biggest problem with the, the platform. Um, Which is that Chris Orr does not have enough sway. That's, yes, that's in, exactly in the conversation. Not yes. nearly enough. Okay. 100,000 okay. probably isn't enough. I think I'm selling myself 10 short. million. You want 10 million. That would be nice. I would go, I would go for that. Okay. Um, the, the bigger thing, and it would be interesting, and it's probably something you'd have to experiment with, um, I think less anonymity would be really useful. I'm sure that you both have the experience that the vast number of like obscene tweets you get from saying, you know, fuck you, scumbag, I hope you die in hell are from small anonymous accounts. And I think also people, Peter Suderman. <laughs> um, and I think I've never know, used that exact term for you, Sonny, I, you know, in, I think on Twitter. More, obviously feel feel they can be vastly ruder if nobody knows their identity. And, you know, and some of this is they're worried about their employers and so forth. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. I mean, that's a kind of communitarian way yeah. to, to, to keep people more or less on the straight and narrow. And I could but, see lots of things. I could see only requiring you to lose anonymity when you reach a certain number of followers. So if you want to just, you know, dip your toe in for a little bit, you can. Um, I mean, I could see getting rid of anonymity altogether, I think. And I think there are other, you know, there should there, sh there should there should what, be a button that lets you only hear from identified accounts. What you, what you are doing though is suggesting getting Twitter on the blockchain. <laughs> what you are, I mean, you are you are this is this you by you are you are suggesting that we we need to get uh, Twitter to a place where where their accounts are identified with actual real life meet space individuals with NFTs um, that, basically, right? And so they're right, correlated via we an were, NFT, which is a unique identifier. We talked we can, about that we before. We can get artists wait, wait, to create Peter, are you saying that we, we are literally NFTs, that actual 
Twitter users are themselves NFTs. I'm not we saying they be. are currently, but Twitter on be. the blockchain, they would be. I aspire to become an NFT. <laughs> I do think, I do think, riffing on Chris's point here, I do think the biggest thing that Twitter could do would be to crack down on organized campaigns of anonymous misinformation, disinformation, and harassment. So, I mean, like, I, I used to joke sometimes that Ryan Johnson, the director of The, the Last Jedi, uh, complained that Russian bot farms were coming after The Last Jedi, and it was just part of the post-2016 campaign to, you know, create... And I, I, I joke that, you know, well, that's not why people hated it. They hated it because it was not a very good movie. But he he had a point here, which was that this did happen. There were there absolutely were Russian bots going after The Last Jedi as part of a divisive, you know, campaign of harassment or whatever on Twitter. But that's because there are Russian bots doing divisive harassment campaigns about literally everything. I mean, if my one big change for Twitter would be to shut down these farms in Eastern Europe uh, and Asia with with absolute brutality, just like campaigns of bot cleansing, you know, uh, waves of terror against them to get rid of them and drive them from from the Internet. That would be that would be my that would be my big fix for Twitter. The bot apocalypse, right? That would be part of the anonymity thing, because I think maybe the most important information you'd want to have to put in there is the location that you're that you're tweeting from. Now, yeah. I realize there are ways to get around all of these things. Sure. But if we make them much more difficult, I mean, certainly you can take down the guys with 15 followers who just routinely harass women on the web. But I think, whatever, it is also, and this is super important, Sonny, I totally agree with you, potentially a way to at least tighten the screws some on, on these, you know, bot farms in Romania and wherever else. I would just put out, you can already adjust your settings so you only see um, responses from uh, blue checks. You can only see responses from people, which blue checks are verified by Twitter. So mm-hmm. that means they have uh, a real identity that is checkable, that has been checked. Uh, so you can already do that to some extent. You can already um, uh, change your settings so that you only see responses from people who follow you. So they've got to actually have decided yeah. to consume your material already. And so Twitter has is already offering customized user experiences like this in an attempt to solve these problems. And I just think that that you're not actually going to solve all of these issues. And, and like the, to me, the, the big issue is not, uh, it's not bots and it's not, you know, blue, uh, eggs with 15 Twitter, fo- Twitter followers. It's people who are, have verified accounts who are saying terrible stuff. Um, and there's plenty of awful, awful stuff and bad information coming from, uh, from people who are verified and who have huge follower accounts and who we definitely know exactly who they are. But I also think that Twitter isn't special in this regard. And, you know, Chris, you mentioned uh, that there are people who are dying because of bad information they got about vaccines on Twitter. And wherever it is, they it, there's, it's certainly the case. I definitely agree with you. There's a lot of bad information about vaccines on Twitter. It is, it is not a great authority for, like, health information. Um, However, there's a lot, there's just as many people, I would guess, who have gotten bad information from Facebook, from oh, more, uh, more from Facebook, uh, probably more sure. from Facebook, but also from places like talk radio. Um, also from, you know, uh, from the equivalent, uh, whatever today's equivalent is of uh, the old uh, sort of uh, uh, subscription Mimeograph. newsletter. It's old subscription. I mean, the sub probably on Substack, right? Substack has not catered to this specific thing nearly as much. Right. But um, and Substack is, of course, hosting, uh, you know, this platform. Platform right now, there's a lot of good stuff on it too, right? And so trying to trying to say that Twitter or Twitter and Facebook or social products are, deserve some sort of unique and special scrutiny, I think uh, it, it just doesn't 
doesn't really hold up. And then you sort of pull this oh. back and you're like, wait, wait. In fact, we don't we, we don't say that there's we need some sort of like content moderation, like overseer of of, uh, you know, uh, of the rest of the media because we have a First Amendment and a free press. And, um, well, but, and not but, to say that Twitter is bound by the First Amendment. But like at some point, what you, you end up pulling this back to a point where you've got to get Congress involved except that you can't get Congress involved and we shouldn't want Congress to be involved. Right. right. Well, I mean, Peter, I would just say like, yes, people get terrible information through talk radio, obviously, and through, you know, Newsmax, OAM, pick your liberal bugaboo. MSNBC. You want. Yep. Um, but all of those are moderated. Like some random person can't just walk onto the set of Tucker Carlson and mm. scream about how they studied, you know, they studied <laughs> vaccines while they were, are we sure about that? Sitting can on we- the toilet. Can we actually? Um, are we, what, it it can may we be true that the person isn't random. Yes. Well. <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway, my point being, my my additional point would just be, Peter. Of course, this doesn't solve it, and I don't think that solving it should be the goal because I think it's insoluble. What should be the goal is to ameliorate it wherever you can. Yeah. Uh, exit thought on this. Uh, it's not really a controversy or non-controversy, so we're not going to ask that question. But exit thought. Uh, the one thing I would do is to to block all of film Twitter and get rid of it. <laughs> get rid of film Twitter. My nemesis. And then uh, you know, we'd be fine. Uh, so I, everybody could just get my film opinions and that would be the uh, the oracle from the mount telling people what to think. Uh, if you As enjoy always, show, the people who want Oversight and regulation are just trying to stamp out their competitors. Exactly. I, I am a, I'm a benevolent uh, god emperor, but I am still the god emperor. Uh, if you enjoy this show, and who doesn't, it's great, uh, please head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus episode on Adam Driver, uh, star of the House of Gucci. Speaking of which, on to the main event. Director Ridley Scott returns to theaters with House of Gucci a month or so after the release of The Last Duel. Uh, and in its first five days, House of Gucci has already doubled The Last Duel's box office gross, though that's not saying much, since The Last Duel grossed a little bit more than $10 million. Uh, House of Gucci stars Lady Gaga as Patrizia Reggiati, a humble girl from a family of truckers and maybe mobsters, who knows, uh, who bumps into Maurizio Gucci, uh, played by Driver uh, at a party, and makes it her mission to marry him, much to the chagrin of Maurizio's father, Rodolfo, played by Jeremy Irons. Rodolfo kicks his son out of the family, uh, but Maurizio finds a surrogate father and Uncle Aldo Gucci, played by Al Pacino, a clothier cursed with a Fredo for a son in the form of Paolo Gucci, played by Jared Leto in a fat suit, and you'll notice my uh, my my accent there is about as good as all of the accents in this movie. Terrible movie for accents. If you like accents, stay away from this film. Um, that's the basic cast of characters. Uh, what you have to understand uh, is that all of them are massively overacting at all times, with the exception of Driver, who turns in a remarkably restrained performance. Uh, Gaga is all wide-eyed ingenue at first before turning into a wide-eyed harridan. She's never not wide-eyed, uh, and she's never subtle, and this movie really reinforces something I suspected when A Star is Born was released and uh, am absolutely certain of now, Lady Gaga is being graded on a very steep curve as an actress. Everybody who who went nuts for her in A Star is Born uh, and you know was going crazy about how great she was, she was doing what William Goldman describes as a dancing bear trick. Everybody is just happy that the bear can dance. They're not that uh, you know impressed about of, on the grades of dancing. Um, she's an okay actress for a singer. She's no great shakes. Uh, Leto is much better 
uh, he's a much better singer come actor. His Paolo is the funniest part of what should be a comedy rather than whatever this movie is. Uh, and that brings me to a re the real problem with it. It's a tragedy that's played for laughs, but does so without actually being particularly funny. It's camp, but it's forced camp, and forced camp has always failed camp. As a matter of simple storytelling, uh, I found myself slightly lost at times, trying to figure out who was in financial trouble, trouble for what misdeed. Um, perhaps most shockingly, the movie has no interest whatsoever in fashion. Has no interest whatsoever in fashion, aside from the flamboyant costumes that Paolo cooks up. And the, again, like that's actually very funny. His his being like, look at these great designs, and Jeremy Irons is uh, Rodolfo being like, you're uh, you're a terrible disgrace to the family. Never let anybody see what you've done. Like that stuff is funny and it works, but it whatever. It, the whole movie is not that. Mostly, I found the whole thing weirdly boring. Shots drag. They go on and on when they shouldn't. Uh, some are just misplaced entirely. There are random things that happen uh, that we get We get shots of, like, Adam Driver jumping. And I guess we're supposed to think this is funny, but it's not funny. It's, it's dumb and bad. Um, it's just not funny or zany enough or amped up enough or tragic enough to justify the 158-minute runtime. Chris, you literally just got out of this movie minutes ago. Uh, so I'm curious what your instant just your instant right now gut reaction to it is. It is so long. It is so <laughs> unimaginably long. Like, I very frequently have the experience, I'm sure both of you do as well, of seeing a movie and thinking, that would have been a lot better 15 minutes shorter, or that would have been a lot better sure. 20 minutes shorter. Almost all movies. This movie would have been a lot better literally an hour shorter. And mm. it probably would have been better an hour and 15 minutes shorter. I mean, it's so lethargic. I mean, nothing happens. It has nothing to say. Uh, as you, you said, Sonny and I was going to bring this up. It has no interest in any of the ancillary elements that can make a movie interesting. It doesn't care about the art of fashion. It doesn't care about the business of fashion. As you said, Sonny, like they're constantly sort of toggling back and forth between Gucci's doing great and Gucci's doing terrible and Gucci's doing great and Gucci's doing terrible. And never once do they explain why that is. Um, which is incredibly frustrating. It's also not interested in the details of financial crime, and those play a fairly central role in the in the film. It's it's basically just two and a half hours of family squabbles set in very beautiful villas. I mean, and the villas are great, but two and a half hours of villas is too many villas for me. Um, I mean, it's like it's like uh, it's like two birthdays, a wedding, and a funeral. <laughs> well, I, um, I, you know, um, what's, but, but with like a, a dozen other parties spread throughout. Yeah, I uh, watching it. The the other thing I was thinking was this is the sort of thing that could be a TV series much more easily than it could be a movie. I mean, uh, Ridley Scott has already said that there's an extended version of the film. Oh, good lord! Um, that will you know that Kill will me uh, maybe maybe fill fill in all the gaps. But I do I do get the sense that this is you know you you if you give if you give them an extra hour and a half or two hours, you can actually tell the full and compelling story. But like what we have on the screen does not work. Just again, just as like a pure storytelling exercise, I was more confused than I should have been while watching it. And not in the in the way that you're confused while watching something like The Counselor, where there's a there's a there's a mystery at the heart of it. There, there, there's a crime that's unraveling in front of our eyes. There, this was just like sloppy. It was just weirdly sloppily told. Well uh and I'm I'm sorry to uh, yeah, interrupt yeah, one yeah. more time before you come on, Peter. Um but I think you're totally right. Like it would still be a terrible TV show if it were written and directed yeah. this way. 
But I mean, but it, what it really most resembles is succession, but succession with every single drop of dark humor taken out of it. And the dark humor is, I think, inarguably what makes succession a guilty delight. Like if they were all just corporate idiots fighting over the family company, it would be really boring. But what's great about it is the vicious insults, the nasty undercutting. Like it's got a real sense of humor. Now, Sonny, I actually don't think that this movie was trying to be funny. And I thought it was trying to be completely serious and earnest. And if it was trying to be funny, it's even worse. I well, I, I'll I'll jump to Peter here in a second and get his opinion on this. Did you think it was intentionally trying to to be a humorous interpretation of these events, or was it accidentally funny? I think that for the most part, it was um, not intentionally trying to be funny. I, I think Jared Leto was trying to be funny. He understood that this ultimately was a was a sort of ridiculous camp story and that that's what this movie should be. And you can see that in just about every minute he is on screen. He's by far the best thing in this movie because I think Jared Leto is the only person who understood had or had any like correct sense about what this movie was actually about and what it should have been about, right? It, it is about just the bizarre and weird characters in what turned out to be a tragic and horrific story of, of murder and crime uh, were attached to one of the biggest fashion brands in, you know, the modern era. Um, no, I this I, I, I agree with a lot of what Chris said, uh, right? Like, it, there is... The movie just sort of doesn't fundamentally work um, in a bunch of ways, and I think it's not just the length. It is very specifically the editing. And there is there is this is one of the worst edited movies I have ever seen. I, I I really think it's it's remarkable because this is not a movie that has too many scenes. It's a movie in which every single scene is too long. Yes, because. For reasons I don't understand at all, it's almost like watching dailies. Have you guys ever watched just like cuts <laughs> of the tough. same shot happening yeah. over and over and over again? And, and there's always like this weird silence around even like these characters just delivering a response, you know, at a, they're sitting at a table and somebody else is feeding them the, the lines with their partner. And then the character, you, you hear the, the character who's on screen will say the same line again. We'll say the same line again in a slightly different way. And there's this like odd beat between every time they say it. Because it's not edited yet. And editing is not just about collecting these things in order or picking which shot is the most interesting shot. It is also about establishing the rhythm of conversation and making sure that it moves fast enough. And this movie just didn't do that. And there is there is 25 minutes of cuts that you could make on your computer without having to change a single thing about this movie where you just cut dead air that is telling people that is telling the viewer nothing. And you would have, not a good movie, but a much better one and a much better paced one. And I don't think I have ever seen Ridley Scott, who is, if nothing else, a consummate professional, make a movie that had like this big a craft problem to it. And the editing here is just a, like, a, it's just a craft disaster. Like somebody yeah. didn't have the time or the resources or was given very bad instructions to, that we want, that for some reason we want this to feel epic and so let it draw out. The movie that I found myself thinking of uh, afterwards was Wolf of Wall Street, which is another movie about fraud and financial misdeeds and whatever. But that movie is snappily. It is I think it's boom, a little longer boom, than this one, boom, if I recall boom. correctly. No, it's it's, it's, it's almost an minutes. hour longer. It's, 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 no, it's, it's about three hours. Yeah. It's about 20 minutes longer than longer this. Yeah, it's like 20. But it zips along. It goes beat to beat to beat. There's never any moment where I was like, all right, let's go. Let's let's keep let's yeah. keep the story going. And this movie, you're right, when people talk about editing, and this is like a thing that I think most 
average film viewers don't understand. Editing is not story structure. Story structure comes in the script. When people say like, oh, this movie was really well edited and they're talking about like Inception, what they're thinking is, well, this is a movie that has been really well written. Uh, it, that It's a movie that is structured this way. Um, movie editing is getting the pace of the film right. And like some of that, sometimes occasionally when you have a, a very good editor, a Walter Murch type, you have somebody who will help with story structure. But usually it is just about pace. It's just about let's get, let's get these shots in Let's get the story flowing in the right way. Let's get these. Uh, let's make sure all of these cuts match. Let's let's do that. Famously, it's, it's the about- edit that saved the first Star Wars film mostly just sped up uh, each scene. It didn't <laughs> it didn't restructure the movie. It just yeah. took those scenes and gave them snap because they were all dragging. Well, yeah. So the one scene, literally the one scene in this movie that I thought worked best is when the principal characters get married and they come down from the church steps and everybody is throwing rice at them from every direction and they're trying to get into the car. And like that scene has some dynamism. Like it uses Ridley Scott's talent for, you know, whatever, bringing something alive, taking shots from different angles. And and I think it's the one scene in the film that is actually well edited. And it's probably partly because it has no dialogue. But like that was the one moment in the movie where I felt fully engaged. I was like, oh, this is cool. And I don't think I ever felt that at any other point in the movie. So similarly, the the one point for me where I was like, okay, this is all working. This is firing on all cylinders is when uh, Paolo, the Jared Leto character, brings his his drawings to uh, Adolfo's house. And he lays them out on the table and he's flipping them over one by one. And there's just a great comic uh, beat in this where he is like clearly very excited to show his drawings and for a second you think that Jeremy Irons is going along with him and you realize that he is uh, going to tell him to never do this ever again and it just it works very well and again I think both of those I think both Jeremy Irons uh, and and Jared Leto understood the movie that they were in they understood the the kind of absurd vanity of these people and like the the ridiculousness of them and maybe Lady Gaga understood it too but she doesn't have the chops to pull off that role like she just she is I I my again my my big takeaway from this is I don't understand how people are very excited about her performance in this film because it does not work for me at all I so, didn't think it was I didn't think it was that bad I I thought it was actually pretty good because she was she was trying to bring some energy to this and I thought that she successfully brought more energy to uh to her scenes certainly than Adam Driver who I get why he like I can see how that performance would be impressive in like a test screening uh right it's very cinematically mannered in that it's small it's that he's like he's just constantly concentrating every little bit of emotion into like an eye twitch, right? There, and it's just a little one, and and he's an exceptionally good actor. But I just don't think this performance works. It's so inert in a movie that then is otherwise made more inert, and so he just becomes this kind of. He's like, have you guys ever been um, in a in one of those rooms that's so soundproofed uh, that that sound dies in it? Right, that like there's no echo, and so um, and uh, the the uh, the, this is the that ones white that like, so they have up, yeah, right? right, so they, so it's an like anabaric chamber. It's the ones that have like no sound in them, but even like a recording studio will be set up so that there's no echo, so that so- sound just like falls to the ground. And that was what this movie's editing felt like to me, and that's what Adam Driver every time he's on screen felt like to me. Was it just sucked the energy out of absolutely everything else? 
in a movie that needed to to act to be manic and weird. And at least Lady Gaga, I think there's some issues with her performance, some things you could complain about. But at least she is trying to bring some energy to this. It's just that most of the time she's paired with Adam Driver, who uh, who sucks the life out of it with this weirdly, weirdly inert performance. So I want to I want to build two bridges between you quickly and then have one insane argument. Okay. Um, I, I don't disagree with you, Sonny. I, I don't think Lady Gaga is a good actress. I think she's a great screen presence. And I think that's actually something that's much harder to learn. And maybe she'll get better as an actress. Maybe she won't. But she's just, she's just great on screen. The camera loves her. She, whatever. And she enlivens, I think, Boy. almost every scene she's in. Adam Driver, I'm somewhere between you guys. Like, you know, I thought it was an occasionally interesting performance, but it's definitely true that it is not a performance that powers the film in any way. Um, but where you both are out of your minds is Jared Leto. That was one of the most impossible to watch performances I've ever seen in my entire life. I mean, genuinely, I was in pain every time he was on screen. And now maybe if they'd made a different movie that was manic and zany and so forth, he would have fit right into it. You know, maybe if it was a Coen Brothers character. But because everybody else is so sort of staid and stuff, he just looks like this giant spaz who spends half the film crying and the other half of the film shouting. And it's just awful. I mean, the film is in many ways like The Godfather, but without any violence until the very last couple scenes. Um, and Jared Leto is playing Fredo, but He's playing Fredo with a Father Guido Sarducci accent, and it ripped my soul out every time he was on screen. I did think the movie had a lot of odd Godfather vibes in that there were constant references that didn't seem to add anything. It was just like, hey, this is kind of like The Godfather, don't you think? Well, yeah, yep, like, okay, I guess it is. It's like, it's the like they designed it for the old video game store shelves where it's, if you like this movie, yeah. maybe you'll like these movies. Yeah, I just, nothing about this. I, I, I... I think you are being too harsh on Jared Leto, who, again, I think understands the absurdity of the movie that he is in. Although maybe the movie wasn't supposed to be absurd. But it but it was. Well, it wound but up It clearly that way. is. Yeah. I mean, like, this is, this is, so it, it's funny. Wait, Ridley Tom Scott Ford, is not somebody who goes in for a lot of absurdist humor as, on a, as a general rule. Right. Has, 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 he, has he done a straight comedy other than maybe Matchstick Men ever? Yeah, I Matchstick don't think Men so. Matchstick Men would probably That's be the, the closest. closest. And I think also Matchstick Men is his worst movie. Oh no! Well, that's you're that's you're crazy. You're crazy on that. So there's no way it's worse than a good year. First of all, it's a good movie, but there's I mean I could I could list like five worse Ridley Scott movies off the top of my head. That's neither here. Actually, nor there. this might be his there. worst movie, but it's to me this it's is this is Men. This is this is the worst Ridley Scott movie that I've seen. There are some that I have not seen. I assume that are probably that are potentially worse than this. Can we but, talk like, a little bit about the Ridley Scottisms in this and how they just sort of like this is like the Ridley Scott urtext in so many ways, and especially seeing this after um, uh, it, the horse movie. The, oh my god, the last after, duel. after the last duel, the horse movie, the horse movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's who was starred in the movie. It was a couple how of horses. Dare you. Um, no, right. So you could totally see all of his his like longstanding interests in here. You have female agency and power and violence, right? Um, in a way that's actually kind of weird because he's he's always so sympathetic to female violence and female power that it kind of the movie kind of seems to suggest at times that maybe this was totally justified to have a hitman kill your ex husband just because he's was a total jackass and he was he was a total jerk and a jackass but like he doesn't deserve it. 
was it was he i she seemed to be totally out of line through the whole movie she I, also like she, was she, she, she also, comes right? she comes across she comes across as a striver and a conniver and and uh is uh the the culmination of that is ordering the hit on her 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 ex-husband i agree that she comes across that way but i i sensed that ridley scott kind of respected it because he always respects that sort of you know, women basically sort of taking matters into their own hands uh, with violence, if necessary, with maybe you know, maybe cunning and charm, realize- if uh, if that's what they've got at their disposal. Uh, and he's so interested in it that I don't think he sort of the movie seems to seems weirdly to lack, uh, like it lacks moral judgment in some sense, in a way that is off-putting, and I say this as somebody who doesn't necessarily need movies to give me, a, like, a, a to be a morality tale, but it seems like the movie doesn't have a good sense of, like, who was morally correct here, and I, I have to say, like, we could say Adam Driver was a jerk. We can say he was awful to his, uh, either the Adam Driver character was a jerk and awful to his wife and maybe maybe a bad businessman and all that stuff, but, like, How? The, the, the person who hires the hitman is the one in the wrong. Period. Again, I again, I I think I think this is a total misread on on the Mauricio character. I don't I don't think that we we I don't think that we see him treating her particularly horribly in the film. I mean, like the worst. No, she's, what's she, the worst thing? What's the worst thing he does? He kind of makes fun of her in front of his other friends. But at, that's at like in, the, in Switzerland, at, at like the two hour point in the movie. And that's yeah, Maybe that's, and that's and after minutes. she's. That's after she has essentially like blown up his entire uh, life and 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 company. Well, he runs off well, with a blonde. Well, repeatedly going behind his back to talk to yeah. members of his family in an effort yeah. to seize power. I mean, I, I she's much she's much worse. Than, I I you're crazy, Peter. You're crazy. <laughs> There's you're, also the father figure who dies at the end of the first act and set it, sets everything to into motion, almost exactly well, like Gladiator, right? Mm-hmm. And all and those Jeremy Irons scenes are shot. In it's like he just sort of took out his gladiator template and then changed the color scheme and the background material, right? But like it's it has that same sort of like oh we're in the hollowed you know sort of a, a tent kind of candlelit vibe thing that he does all the time, uh, right? And it's just weird to see Ridley Scottisms so present in the Last Duel and work very well, and then two months later, not even two months later, see all the same bag of tricks play out exactly like not exactly the same, but like play out again and really, really not work. Yeah. It was interesting. Uh, uh, one last point and we'll wrap this up. Uh, Tom Ford, the designer who is actually a character in this, in this film, he wrote an essay for uh, air and mail or somebody um, talking about his watching the movie from his perspective. And he, you know, he's like, I don't understand the camp and the humor of it all. This was a very tragic event and this was a very, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm just too close to it to see why this is ridiculous and, and and funny and the subject of fun. But you know, for 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 us on the ground, it was it was a it was pretty traumatic. <laughs> and I'm I'm very sympathetic to this point of yeah. view because I like I think there is a there is an actual tragic story to be told about this movie. There is an actual uh, kind of uh, striving, almost Shakespearean comedy that you could tell about the Lady Gaga character. But what they have is this weird conglomeration of the two that just doesn't work. Um, so I guess y- when we say thumbs up or thumbs down, you know I'm going to be a thumbs down. Peter, what do you got? It, in some ways, it is a movie that's worth watching just because Ridley Scott's movies are always worth watching. Um, however, I can't really recommend it. And it's also, it's a bad movie. It is so just that, that's, the, that's, that's a thumbs, thumbs down. down. You could just say thumbs yeah, down. Peter's fence sitting should should be ignored here. Don't don't see the movie. It's terrible. It lasts forever. 
I literally was late to the podcasting because it just wouldn't <laughs> stop. Wouldn't stop. All right. Uh, Ridley Scott never does. Show. Uh, if you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode on the wild and wonderful Adam Driver. Uh, and make sure to tell your friends. Strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we will die. Uh, if you didn't love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter, at Sunny Bunch. I will uh, convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys again next week. 